Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 116 with my return guest, Megan Parkansky. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code HAPPY. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute <laughs> a substitute for mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a forum for stuttering. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for the show is mentalpod.com. Please go there and um, check out the forum, post, get to know people, take some surveys, sign up for the newsletter, all kinds of good stuff there. And speaking of newsletters, um, those of you that have signed up for it, uh, I apologize that uh, I haven't sent one out in probably... Um, God, it's, it's probably been like six months. And so I did one recently. I came across uh, from the Shame and Secrets survey. Someone had filled it out. And they their survey, um, those of you that know me and my, and my uh, personal story know that um, I'm kind of uh, obsessed with uh, sexual abuse that falls into a gray area. Um, and there was something about this guy's survey that just kind of got my head um, spinning because I didn't, I would think one thing one minute and another thing the next minute. And I thought, well, why don't I send this out as a newsletter and maybe post it on on Facebook and tweet about it and get other people's reactions. Um, So I sent this out in the newsletter and I'm going to read the survey to you. Um, It was filled out by a guy who calls himself Kershey Joe. He is straight and he's in his 20s, was raised in what he describes as a stable and safe environment. Um, 
and ever been the victim of sexual abuse. He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Uh, when my story first started, my sister initiated it. I didn't dislike it, so I can't really call it abuse. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm scared of talking to almost anyone except my sister. Despite being in my earliest 20s, I work from home for the single reason of having the smallest amount of human inter- interaction possible. The idea of being nervous, anxious, and physically scared of talking to anyone, including my own family, makes me feel disgusting and has led me to burning my feet with a lighter. I then binge eat or starve myself to either punish myself or to numb everything. The only thing I'm truly proud of is knowing I'm good at my job and I love nothing more than being with my sister. Deepest, darkest secrets. My secret is my life. Ever since a young age, me and my sister, who is two years older than me, have been in a strong, incestuous relationship. The first time it happened was when I was around the age of 11, and my sister and I were looking through a Where Babies Come From book. My sister, halfway through laughing and joking about that book, told me to take off my pants because she could see I had an erection. She stroked it, asking me if it felt good. I was more shocked and confused at the time, but let her do it anyway. She would jack me off every now and again, once every month or two, and would always, and it would always be her asking me to. This is when I began developing feelings for my sister. When I was 14, my sister and I had sex. After hours of playing with each other's private parts, including her going down on me and me going down on her, we had a minute of bliss. At that moment, I was euphoric, high off of the pure pleasure of being so connected with the one person who understood me. I want to point out that I grew up in a loving family and love both my parents, despite finding it hard to talk, hard to talk to them. Me and my sister had sex more and more often as we got older and grew closer and closer together. My sister and I didn't go to college and instead moved in together after I graduated school. We used the excuse, it's cheaper to explain why we live together. Uh, I had to move out a few years ago, however, because of training I needed for my current job. I didn't see my sister for around six months, which is when I developed my strong fear of interaction. After moving back two years ago, my sister and I's sexual and loving relationship has continued even though she has a boyfriend. I live on my own, but she often visits me every day to have sex, watch movies, chat, and snuggle. I think my sister is the most beautiful woman in the entire universe. She's fit, smart, loving, and caring, and I feel safe when she's with me. We have both told each other hundreds of times we love one another, but she continues to keep her boyfriend, which I am too scared of ruining our relationship to ask about. My parents know nothing of our incest, and I don't think they knew when we were kids. All I know is that I feel no shame about loving my sister. I do feel overwhelmed and depressed when thinking about the future. Um... Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My greatest sexual fantasy is being surrounded by all the girls I've ever had crushes on, being in a mass orgy with me and my sister. It would be full of passion rather than pure filth, such as anal sex or fetishes. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? I tell my sister absolutely everything, apart from the things that I feel may sabotage our relationship. I almost never bring up her boyfriend, and she doesn't bring him up much either. Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel no shame in my fantasies or or, uh, love for my sister, 
I only hate myself for being such a pathetic fuck that I can't keep a conversation going with my parents for longer than 10 seconds before panicking. I feel choked and self-destructive when I'm not working or with my sister and feel no sense of joy unless it's related to one of those two things. And so I'm going to read you um, the emails that I got from people and their takes on it. This is from listener Nikki. This is a hard one. I mean, it was totally sexual abuse when he was younger, even though he, quote, let her do it. But since they continue their explorations and relations as teenagers than adults, it's become so much more complicated. It seems like she has been consciously or unconsciously taking advantage of his lack of control. What child has self-control? And it is extended into their adult relationship. He could possibly be stuck in a childlike mentality every time they make love, safe when with her which could lead to his lack of trust or desire to interact with other people on an adult level and why he doesn't want to stop. But who are we to judge the love of two people? Now that they are two consenting adults, but they definitely need to start talking to a non-biased someone about it. It really sucks he's going through so much trouble. I can only imagine the turmoil his head and heart are in. I wonder if his sister is having any sort of emotional distress from all of this. Andrea writes, this is a complex situation, and I really hope he is seeing a therapist, a good one, and seeing them a couple of times a week. Overall, I think his sister is using him as an escape from real life. He thinks he can't be without her. He has to be. This will not end well, not at all. They are both victims and codependent of each other. What I know to be true is that emotions are physical. Regardless of what we are telling ourselves, feelings will show physically in our behavior. In this case, the anxiety and many other behaviors exhibited are giving him the true story. I have no judgment, but I really hope he gets into therapy and can, be and can begin to see a bigger picture of himself, happy with who he is instead of the micro view of who he is or is not with his sister. Mike writes, it appears it started as abuse, then turned consensual. However, it does cause him distress, which tells me he's not okay with the idea or how it will be perceived. Brianna writes, this is a story of abuse. My son is currently 11, and if something like this happened to him, I don't think he would have the capacity to understand it. Kershey Joe, I suspect, felt needed by his sister before a time he had any sense of or other options out there for sharing such a close experience. So I think it wasn't a true adult decision that got him into this. Many of my failed relationships are because I wanted to feel needed and was soon convinced that the person I was with is the only one who needed me, regardless of what they did. The word beholden comes to mind. The situation is above all convenient for both Kershey Joe and his sister, but his sister seems to, able to be able to function while he cannot. If she has a boyfriend and perpetuates the sexual relationship, I feel that is selfish of her. Once again, Kershey Joe was forced into a sexual relationship too early before he had a sense of what other possibilities were out there and now has a very distorted sense of his value in society, specifically the poten uh, potential relationships he could have with other people. He has become beholden to his sister and thus enslaved. I suspect convenience perpetuates him not seeing other possibilities for him out there. I hope he can find a way to look beyond this one day and try to find something outside of this, quote, relationship with his sister. I just cringe thinking that my that boys my son's age experience this. Hannah writes, I've learned that at any time I have to keep any part of a relationship secret, I probably ought to not be sleeping with that person. It's toxic. I think that's what he's going through because in a lot of ways he can't be true to himself, deeply in love with someone whom society would label as wrong 
slash immoral, slash gross, etc. But he also can't ask his sister to be true to him and exclusive. Maybe that's where the, uh, where the abuse lies. Ryan uh, writes, This is absolutely abuse, consensual or not, but the primary abuse here is not sexual. There are a few things that are going on here that make me think so. I'll start with the most cut and dry and work my way up. One, his sister initiated the contact. Incest is abuse. By the letter of the law, she absolutely committed it and is still doing so. Just because he enjoyed it and continues to, it doesn't mean that it's not abuse. It's absolutely absolutely abuse at any age, but when his sister initiated it, they were in completely different worlds developmentally, both when they had their first contact and when they first had sex. I mean, there's a reason that the age of consent is 16 and not 14. Think of how different you were at those ages. Lots of stuff happens in those two years. Never mind the differences in development between the ages of 11 and 13. Two, I find the idea that he doesn't even feel comfortable talking to his own parents, much less anyone outside his sister, very troubling. It seems to me as though there is a culture between the two of them that doesn't allow for him to interact with others, even on the most basic levels. I don't f- quite feel comfortable saying that she manipulated him because I don't know him, but in the way he talks about her in the survey, that's where my brain is going. That his sister has a boyfriend also adds a whole other layer to the idea that she may be manipulating him. It makes me so sad that he views the relationship he has with his sister to be loving and healthy, and I worry that he views a loving relationship as one that involves that much manipulation and unhealthiness. I also find it interesting that he views her as safe when I get the impression from what he has written that she is anything but. My heart really breaks for this young man. It sounds like he really needs some help, and I hope that filling out this survey is his first step in getting it. Thank you for that, Ryan. Ryan, by the way, is a as a female who has um, I've corresponded with before and um, has always had a lot of really great insight about uh, sexual abuse. Um, Elizabeth writes, it sounds consensual. It doesn't sound abusive. She was only 13. He was 11. They were curious and experimented and both genuinely enjoyed it. Apparently, he felt so safe in it that it became his one place of safety. It sounds like it led to some extraordinarily unhealthy enmeshment. To me, the start of it doesn't sound abusive. You know, my, my thought on that one, as I interject here, is I bet if he went and looked at a picture of her at 13 and him at 11 he would probably feel the blood leave his stomach um, because he would see that really developmentally there's a huge difference between a 13 year old girl and an 11 year old boy um, Catherine writes I really do feel that this is sexual abuse it may seem harsh but reading the description it feels almost like Stockholm syndrome he sees his sister as his only confidant and true friend when his relationship is far from healthy. He is filled with so much fear and anxiety about the relationship that he is physically hurting himself. Remove the fact that she is his sister and think of her as a, as a girlfriend. Would this relationship be healthy then? No, absolutely not. He can still love and have a platonic relationship with his sister with the right counseling, but I believe that he needs to step back from this relationship and really think about whether it is good for him or not. And finally, Nicole writes, I think much scarier than the incest is the fact that he is so obsessed with his sister, has extreme social phobia, self-harms, and hates himself. She has a boyfriend, yet still cheats on the boyfriend. Even if the two were not related, this is an extremely unhealthy and harmful relationship. I think the incest takes a far second place to the way this relationship destroys his life. 
possibly abusive, manipulative, codependent, borderline. I don't know what it is, but this man does not have an identity outside of his sister and his job, and I hope he gets help. Although he's so happy with his sister and afraid of people that it seems unlikely that he'd reach out. I want to thank you guys for chiming in on that. Um, it's a, it is, um, there's a lot of stuff going on in that one. And, um, it felt good to, uh, open that up and see what you guys think. Cause so often it's me just saying what I, what I think. Um, I'm going to read something from the Shame and Secrets survey. Um, how are we on time? By the way, the, the episode with Megan today is kind of on the short side. Um, the interview with her is uh, only about 40 minutes long. So uh, I'm going to be doing more surveys than I, than I normally do. Um, this is from the Shame and Sur- Secrets survey filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Broken Doll. Um, She's straight in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, and by the way, that last uh, Kershey Joe's, when he said he was raised in a stable and safe environment, and yet he panics when he talks to his parents for 10 seconds. Just feels like there's so much under the surface that that he's just uh, numbed himself to. I really do hope he gets into, a, into therapy. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Broken Doll writes that she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I constantly think of ways I could die, mostly how I could make my death look like an accident. Anytime I drive anywhere, I just imagine my car being in a terrible accident. I don't always imagine death, but at least near death. I hope that a near-death experience would actually wake me up from the state I'm in and actually make me, for once, feel alive. If not, I just hope that I would actually die. I just don't feel like I belong. And I would say, of our listeners... Um, and most of the people I've met in the world, most people feel like they don't belong. Um, I just came from a support group meeting where two people were sharing how they always felt like they didn't belong. And one person was the last guy who would always get picked for gym class. And the other guy was a guy who played professional basketball and he always felt like he didn't belong. Um, Deepest, darkest secrets. I hate that I always feel like I have to do what the man wants, especially when it comes to sexual acts. I always feel like I have to provide the man with his sexual fantasy and pleasure him. I don't believe I have a right to feel pleasure. It actually scares me to feel pleasure. I guess this comes from the fact that when I was 15, I had an abusive older boyfriend. He was my first for everything, and not everything was by choice. I still feel ashamed for everything and uh, very distanced from sex. I don't think I can ever understand love. When I find myself in a relationship, I feel like I need to be hurt, and if he doesn't hurt me, I mess things up until I'm hurt. Sometimes when I try to make someone hurt me and I hurt them, I feel extremely guilty. I don't want to hurt anyone. I just want to take their pain away and carry it for them. I also feel guilty for having an abortion. I worry that I can never be a good mother because I allowed my boyfriend to convince me to kill my child. I didn't protect it or myself. I often imagine my life with this child, but then I recall how he told me I would be a terrible mother and would have probably killed it anyways. He sounds like a good dude. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My sexual fantasy is to 
for once be on equal ground, to feel pleasure and provide pleasure equally. I want the sex to be something more than just a physical activity, but a way to connect with someone on a stronger level. I guess you could say feel love. I don't want it to be just the sex, but I want to be able to cuddle with the person after and feel happy. You know, that makes me feel such optimism for you. Um, not that people that don't have that fantasy uh, shouldn't feel optimistic, but um, I don't know that I just felt compelled to, to mention that. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Yes, I could tell a friend. One day, I hope I could tell a partner, but I haven't found the right person. The people I go for, I know I can never mentally connect with. I just have sex because they want it. I've never felt connected to anyone I've had sex with. I've told a few friends when intoxicated how I don't connect sex to emotions, but see it as purely a physical thing to do for the man to feel good and empowered. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel ashamed of my behavior. I worry no one will accept me, my past, my scares. I feel distanced and lonely. Many days I see myself as a slut because I have trouble saying no. Many days I wish I was stronger. You know, it would be great if the word slut, every time it was mentioned, the only person that felt shame was the person that used it. Wouldn't that be nice? You are not a slut. And um, I'm kind of ashamed how many times in my life I've, I've I used that word, not understanding the various reasons people are, quote, promiscuous or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's, if people aren't getting hurt, and if I just said, I'm not coming hard, <laughs> if people aren't getting hurt, orgasm away, that's what I say. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Lonely Teen. He's straight, he's 18, raised in a stable and safe environment never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I've not consciously thought this, but I had a dream where I was having sex with my mom, uh, sex with my mom, but as I woke up, I was extremely disgusted with myself and ever since been deeply scared of that thought. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets. My deepest secret is uh, most likely the cause of my dream, and when I was a kid at about 13, I saw my parents in our spa naked. It was very dark, so that I, I could only see their silhouettes, but I masturbated over my mom. I would like to point out I am not at all sexually attracted to my mom. The thought of that freaks me out to my core. However, I would like to know if this is not just a problem I have, if this was only a phase of a kid going through puberty. And I I'm going to weigh in and say that is exactly what that is. If we got judged by the shit we jacked off to when we were teenagers or even adults, um, you know, jails would be jails would be where free people lived and the rest of us uh, would be incarcerated in all the rest of the open spaces. So, dude, don't, I remember one time being on a ski trip. I was 16 years old and a, a friend of mine's a church group was the one that was doing the ski trip and we were going I think we were going to Rib Mountain uh, in Wisconsin and I remember and we were of course sneaking alcohol and sneaking one hitters in the bathroom and I remember just feeling so fucking lonely and horny and this woman who was probably about 50 years old you know which seemed like a hundred at the time 
um, got up to use the restroom, and I noticed that the restroom in the back of the bus, there was just a little tiny gap where you couldn't even actually see the person, but you could see their reflection off a shiny surface, and just like, not even a clear reflection, like a silhouette. And I remember this woman took her bra off, and I think I had to go into the bathroom after her and jerk off, because it was just like that powerful to me. And um, and I remember just feeling like, oh my God, I'm the fucking worst person on the planet. Two more. Two more things I want to read before we get to the interview with Megan. Um this was filled out by a woman who calls herself, uh, it's from the Shame and Secret survey. She calls herself Day Spin 76. She's straight in her 30s. And there's just one thing that I wanted to read that she wrote. She writes, I should probably fantasize about men, but I don't. My friends would be shocked to hear I had a lesbian encounter for at least six months in college. This was the closest I ever felt to anyone. Her licking my nipple was the most sexual I've ever felt. And she identifies, um, as I said, as, as straight. And there there shouldn't be any shoulds in terms of fantasies. If we can get rid of shoulds in terms of fantasy, um, and if, if, if that woman licking your nipple felt so awesome, why deny that? Why deny that part of yourself? Who gives a fuck what anybody else thinks? And finally, I want to read an excerpt from a book I'm reading that's blowing my mind called The Narcissistic Family. And um, it's written by uh, Therapist for Therapists. I didn't know that when I bought it. It's um, uh, I just saw it got five stars. And I was like, I got to read this. And it's it's so good. Every once in a while, there will be a little part in there where they're talking about shit that I have no fucking idea. But for the most part, it's such an accessible book and so profound. Um, it's written by Stephanie Donaldson Pressman and Robert Pressman. They're both therapists. And in narcissistic households, um, meaning where the adults put their needs ahead of the needs of their children, and the children grow up ter- terrified of looking as if they're needy or inconvenience- inconveniencing people. Um, this paragraph blows my mind when I read it. They said, what's common for adults raised in narcissistic families is the underuse of power. These individuals have a hard time with the concept that to underuse or refuse to use the power that one legitimately has is also to abuse that power. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career to die and to stop him from feeling any joy <laughs> that is very uncomfortable in my own body i ended up becoming a male prostitute and what i became was an animal they took away my shoelaces i became chaos like it hurts i just want to go i just want to leave you have no idea what a small part of your life this is if you go to a support group it's like creating a family that you didn't have i mean life is one percent event my body was abused 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Megan Parkansky, who uh, listeners probably know from the episode we recorded with you, I guess it would have been in 2011? It was almost a year ago. Okay, then 20... 2012. 2012, early mm-hmm. 2012. You were the first listener... 
that I ever had on as a guest. And I guess we, we had course you had emailed me a little bit about your story yes and told me that you were moving to LA um you're a documentary filmmaker and um we met for coffee and I was like I I I I'd like the listeners to hear your story so we recorded and kind of stayed in touch yeah and then I guess it would have been about 9 months later oh in in the part of of Megan's story um, from our, our previous episode was that you had had kind of a, a psychotic break. Is that what what it would be described? Yeah. When you were in college, right around the time that you were coming the, coming out to your the parents. The day I came out. The day you came out to your parents. Yes. Because your mother, at that point, was not very... Um, terrible reaction. Yeah, terrible reaction. Um, Haven't I thought about AIDS? Yes. <laughs> That's one of her one of the things that she said. Um, then you went on meds. Yes. Uh, well, I went on meds um, about a year and a half after that happened. I actually went into the um, mental facility. They medicated me there, and then when I got out, um, my parents were really off put by the fact that I they had told me I was either schizophrenic or bipolar and they were like oh she's not that and I was scared of those terms as well so I'm just like I'm not taking any medication for this so I'll show I, them yeah <laughs> I guess and um but then about a year passed and I I was fine but I got to a point where I started just getting depressed again and not not feeling well so that's when... But none of the psychosis, just n- depression. No, yeah. Um, so that's when I went back to a therapist and just decided to kind of submit to the system instead of fight against it. And um, Then I stayed on medication for two years. I was taking Lamictal. Mm-hmm. And then, Which is a mood stabilizer. Yes. And then stopped taking it October of 2011. And why did you stop taking it? I stopped taking it because I, it's the story here a bajillion times. I just thought that I was better. And, um, <laughs> I made the same mistake. I'm not <laughs> yeah. laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Um, yeah, I, I thought that what happened to me, the, the breakdown was a fluke and I was just like, it was, you know, four years had passed since it happened at that point. So I figured I I don't want to... I remember thinking I don't want to take medication all the time and I'm approaching the time where I'm not going to have health insurance and won't be able to get it anyways. So I'll just not take it anymore. Which I think a lot of people, a lot of people do. And the thing too about meds, you go off your meds and you don't necessarily feel it right away sometimes it'll take days weeks even months sometimes up to six months before you begin to feel uh the effect of not having that that medication so uh i got a text from you that i can't remember exactly what it said but like i just i can't do it anymore i think is what the the text said and um talk talk about how the illness creep back in and 
and how what it felt like and what you did about it it was it almost went right from everything's fine or so it felt to just complete fucking disaster in like a matter of hours it felt like i what how long did it feel okay that from being off your meds until it didn't feel only okay? until the breakdown happened basically but i mean days weeks months how long were you off the meds before the the second oh, breakdown um, happened i got off of them october 2011 i got hospitalized august of 2012 oh so a while yeah that's the thing that is confusing for me is that typically I really feel okay. My, you know, lately I'm, t you know, not, I've had a lot of depression and all that really serious stuff a while ago, but it's not until it gets really bad where there's a breakdown where I, I'm like, holy shit, what just happened? So it's not like, oh, I'm starting to feel depressed again. It's not like that. Um, the way that the way that things were that led up to it was that I was working on my documentary again, and it, um, and you were putting in huge amounts of hours. Yeah, I. Well, I had finished the documentary before I moved to L.A., but when I came here, I got an internship with a production company, and they were really um, giving me a lot of advice and urging me to go back and trying to get DVDs made. It's about something affiliated with the NFL, so I had to go get their permission, stuff like that, go through a shit ton of red tape. And so just the process of getting back into working on my film again. And um, I wanted, I got the idea of getting DVDs made in June, I think. And because football season, I wanted it to come out in coinciding with the football season. Um, I wanted it out by September 9th. So I had to raise all the money to get the buy the rights to get the DVDs made. I was editing together special features for it. I was getting the graphic art made. While at the same time, I was working and interning here two to three days a week. So pretty much from the second I woke up until the second I went to bed, it was just all about, I got to get this shit done. Like I was in a very frantic and there's the term manic probably fits in well here that I got to a stage where I was not thinking about anything else I, you know I, my place was a mess I wasn't eating I wasn't sleeping I was just so ultra super focused on this one thing getting this DVD made and this documentary finished so fair that, to fair to say that there wasn't a whole lot of self-care involved no I for like a month straight I was not taking care of myself or thinking about just my basic needs. Mm -hmm. So um, the when the breakdown occurred, I was going off a period where I didn't sleep for like two days. I think I ate like once a day, but something shitty like pizza or something like that. And 
that's pretty much when I got out of the hospital or into the hospital, when I was asking, I was so confused and like, what happened to me? Because it happened so fast. Everyone was just like, oh, you were stressed. You were stressed. And I'm like, that doesn't feel like stress. I feel like I just had another breakdown. So it was like, it was stress. That can't be what it was, but that's what everyone told me it was. And my diagnosis currently with the psychiatrist that I'm working with now is psychotic disorder, not otherwise specified. So I was diagnosed with bipolar for my first breakdown from a separate uh, group of psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever. And now it's, I'm taking the same medication. I'm back on the medication as I was on before, but it is, I'm diagnosed psychotic disorder, not otherwise specified. So I think that, um, it's just that at, I, I'm not always vulnerable to have psychotic breakdowns, but in times where I am vulnerable, from what I've gathered from my two experiences, I, I, then, you know, I just, I always need to stay on my medication because who knows, maybe a tragedy happens tomorrow and I get into a frantic state again and I can't handle it and I lose touch with reality again. That's the sound letting us know. It's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. Our sponsor this week is Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. It is, if you've never been there, it's, it's, what are you, a fucking idiot? Go there. Maybe that's a little harsh right out of the gate. I I personally think their, their slogan should be, don't be an asshole. Use Squarespace. It is so easy to use. It's drag and drop. Uh, they have awesome uh, support. They're there 24-7. Um, their designs, I think, are probably what set them apart from most of the other uh, website design places. Really beautiful templates. Um, and they're constantly updating, coming up with new things. Um, you can easily connect all of your uh, social accounts. And don't feel guilty if you're asocial, if you have no friends. Maybe that's the reason you should actually create a website. Um They have uh, commerce. You can set up an e-commerce thing using their platform in just a couple of minutes. So you could start selling shit. Maybe selling shirts that say, um, would you be my friend? I got nothing going on. Maybe not. Maybe that's a horrible idea. Maybe I plan this out a little better. Next time I do a pitch for people that are supporting my show, all of a sudden I'm becoming Andy Kindler. Mm. Doing Don Rickles. Mm. So uh, for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use our offer code HAPPY, H-A-P-P-Y. <laughs> like you couldn't spell happy. Oh my God, do I hate myself. Squarespace, thank you for advertising. So, yeah. But but if you're on the meds, that's a pretty good safety net that, y- that yes. the, uh, another psychotic episode won't happen. I mean, that's what I can bet on. I, I, I don't think it would. But I mean, it's that's never... one of the, th- and that's one of the things that's so frustrating about living with mental illness is, it's not clearly defined. You know, it's not like a tumor that you, you they can say it's this big. It's now it's shrunk. It's this big. It's it's a mixed bowl of spaghetti, and there's there's so many, and th- an- ancillary things about living with depression that add. On top of it, the stigma of society, you know, maybe you're, you're 
friends that don't understand it treating you with with kid gloves or or pulling away or you wearing just wearing them out because you know you're you're hard to you're hard to deal with or you're down or you cancel plans five times in a row because you can't get out of bed all of those things on top of the not feeling well um i think people that that have never lived with mental illness don't know how many ripples it it can cause can you talk about what the what the break felt like when it when it happened this the second time what what did it feel like in your body yeah. in your mind um it felt similar to the first time i the day that it happened i was interning so i came into the production company to do my interning and i hadn't slept the night before and so I was just so exhausted and I remember I just, I had like a really simple task to do that day but I just remember sitting at the computer and like nothing was making sense to me I couldn't take anything in and then I remember the lights like I was really sensitive to any sort of light flash or anything that light on the printer was blinking and the light on the mouse was blinking and that was just like too i felt like the walls were closing in on me it freaked me out so much so then i'm like fuck something's not right right now and i started to get paranoid and i started like the producers were walking in and out and talking to me and i'm just like are they like i felt like something was going on and that they were fucking with me or something i didn't that that was the big theme was that people were fucking with me mm-hmm. or something or testing me and so i finally i i had sat there for like 10 minutes staring just blankly at this computer and i'm like you're not going to be able to do this today so i just went and took a walk outside and that's when the paranoia really started kicking in top notch and there were vehicles outside that were black vehicles and i thought the reality tv thing came up again as in my first breakdown i thought that i was on a, like spy vehicles were filming me for a reality tv show so i'm like and i work for a production company who did a hidden camera series <laughs> So I was like, oh no. It makes perfect sense. (laughs) So my paranoid self convinced me that I didn't know what was going on, but I'm like, someone's fucking shooting me with a camera around here. (laughs) So I'm like, I don't trust these people. I'm getting out of here. Like the people at the office. So I went back in, but I was like just super sensitive to like every noise, everything, every light. And I approached the producer i was like i i didn't say i was paranoid i told him i think i was having a panic attack which i kind of was as well and that i needed to lay down and go home and so he let me lay down in his office and then he took off somewhere but basically told me don't go anywhere until you feel better so i was just thinking i need to get the fuck out of here so after he left i still felt weird of course and messed up but i'm like i just like i'm too freaked out right now i gotta go so as i was driving home 
I live in Orange County, so it's uh, it was a, like an hour and a half drive or two hour drive in traffic. So I kept on having flashbacks from like my, what am I trying to say? It's not flashbacks really, but in my first breakdown, I thought everything was a sign. I thought songs were talking about me. Media was talking about me. So what do I do when I get in my car? I listen to podcasts. I thought your podcast was talking about me, you know, all the podcasts I listen to. And I just kept telling myself, don't buy into this. Like, this isn't real. This isn't happening. And then I just kept thinking, this is a test. And then my paranoid self thought, oh, well, if I'm on a reality show and this is a test, then this is a test that I just need to not buy into this breakdown. So so like a war between your intellectual self and your emotional self. I knew that there I was hallucinating, but I was believing my hallucinations, but I knew that they weren't yes. Was so it, yeah, was exactly. it was part of you swayed because emotionally you felt that this is what was was happening is is that why because your emotions felt so convinced well, no by i was it? seeing and hearing things that i believed which it, weren't true was it your interpretation of the things that were happening that seemed it or were you hearing things that weren't being said or is no, that impossible? it was my interpretation okay um for instance when I was driving back south to Orange County, there was, the first thing I remember was there was a car, there was a car that looked like mine and I saw somebody have their hand out the window and I thought that in that hallucination they were wanting me to follow them and get off the road and follow them. So I was like, I'm not going to do that because that's what this breakdown is wanting me to do. So it was all just about run, like running away and blocking out like this crazy shit. Um, another thing was in my first breakdown, I thought that all black vehicles like were the government's and that the government was after me. So whenever I saw a black vehicle, I was like, fuck you that's not like that's not what it is but i felt like people were fuck I felt you like, fuck you to your self that is trying to be yes tell you that this is a uh, yes a um, conspiracy and plus like i said i thought people were fucking me i didn't know what fucking with me <laughs> i didn't know what was going on but i thought somebody was doing this to me and i thought that it was like a gang up effort on on me somehow so it was kind of like fuck you to these people who are fucking with me as well, mm -hmm. which was my own head. But when I finally got back home, um, I rented a room from somebody, so I kind of ignored everyone else in the house and just went in my room. And that's when I sent you the text. I remember being like, okay, you cannot talk yourself out of this. You're in something and you need medication. Like... I knew that I needed to be medicated at that point. And so, but all at once, I felt like just this depressed feeling that I had that 
I felt so intensely that if someone put a gun to my head and told me, like, just get up and walk out the door, I couldn't have done it. I was just depleted and had, like, I was so confused and scared and just immediately sad. And um, part of it, too, was because because I was listening to podcasts on the way here, I heard the sh- you know shows I listened to, yours being one of them, and I thought you were talking shit about me. <laughs> And I don't know why, but my, another part of me was like, that can't be true. Paul likes you. You're, you know, your friends. So that's when I was like, I don't know who else to reach out to right now. Paul's talking shit about me, but you know what? I'm going to send him a text because he's the only person I know right now that I can like say I'm fucked up right now too, you know? So then I remember you told me... Um, Go fuck yourself. <laughs> pretty, yes. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> gotta yeah, cut, gotta that's cut the you real loose. Paul, yeah. Uh, I remember, I fe- I remember feeling overwhelmed by your text and, and feeling like I, you know, I know how to talk to friends that are depressed, um, but there was something about your text that seemed like you had broke from reality and I don't know how to deal with with that i i have another friend who who um has a similar thing it's called schizo um i I forget the name of it but it it involves when he's not medicated it involves intense paranoia and he knows intellectually he's being paranoid but he feels it so deeply in his bones and and almost like something violent in 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 him is going to is going to snap like he's just being pushed Mm. did you feel like you were being not that you were going to be violent, but it was like something that was pushing you, um, testing your like your like your ability to to handle all of the all of the feeling that comes with it. No, not no? not particularly. What what was it that that made you say enough enough is enough? I've got to I've got to well, ask for help. I can't I can't do this. This isn't because, gonna go away. Right. Um it was because I literally couldn't get up. Like like I said, I got home, I laid on my bed and I couldn't sleep. Like my brain felt so stung is the only word I know how to describe it. It was just like I guess I was I mean, I was living in some sort of different consciousness, so I couldn't just take a nap <laughs> so um and i would imagine when you're feeling paranoid a nap is the last thing let me just turn my back to the door and close my eyes that'll right. make my paranoia go away right when people are making a reality tv show about you and testing whether or not you buy into your hallucinations it's not uh what re- per- what percentage of you believed that and what percentage of you was fighting that thought a hundred percent on both ends wow yeah. Wow, that that's kind of heartbreaking because that sounds so overwhelming. Yeah, it sucked. But that's why, you know, if I bought into the hallucination only that Paul hates me, he's talking about me on his podcast, and I didn't have the other side saying that can't be true, I wouldn't have sent the text to you. So sorry about that. I just... I. I don't like I don't tell people about my uh 
paranoid thoughts or things like that. You're the only person I've ever opened up to that isn't, you know, someone like only a couple people back from home know. So you're the only person I felt comfortable <laughs> apparently sending a text to. Sorry for laying that on you. But I, after I got done talking to you, I get what, hmm, let me think for a second. I think I urged you to, to call your parents, didn't I? Or did somebody urge you to call your parents? Because you, I, I asked you, the first thing I asked you was, are you on your meds? And you, I think you said that you had, you would, you couldn't afford them anymore. And I think I remember oh, saying, "Oh yeah, I'd been I turned twenty. Yeah, I was on my parents' insurance um, until I was twenty six. I turned twenty six in June, and then after that, it was kind of like, well, SOL for me. Like, and I didn't consider a venue to get. You know, I didn't know what to do at that point. And I can't imagine how many young people there are that are having to work." two and three low-paying jobs. Yeah. They, they don't have their career footing yet, and now they're no longer on their parents' insurance. So they've got the stress of trying to survive, unsure about their future, mm-hmm. and and they don't want to be tethered to their parents anymore, and they're going to try to do it on their own. That, that There must be so many mm-hmm. people like that. Is there... If I were to have... Re- on that day when I didn't have insurance and I needed medication, do you know where my outlet would have been to? Well, there there are some places you could go to the emergency room, and um, okay, that's where the I got brought to. So yeah, um, you can go to an emergency room. I think different emergency rooms vary as to what your financial responsibility will be for them, um, but they may be able to connect you with. Um, a place that works on a sliding a sliding scale mm-hmm. but often those places you know you're making an appointment you can't go see him tomorrow you know if you're having a psychotic break you you want to go to the emergency room and um at least in my opinion that's you know that's what i i, I think somebody should do mm-hmm. but there's a resource uh, from a landline you can dial 211 right and yeah. um that that is a kind of a switchboard for local community services so then you could tell them um you know i'm having a mental crisis right now and then they could put you through to wherever they whatever your community has and so that's that's a good a good way to go in i've been told yeah i know a bit about two-on-ones um but just from a landline not from a cell phone okay yeah um so your parents f- flew out. Did you you obviously called them? What did you what did you tell them? Or did you not call them? Um well I called them the night that night, but what I tried doing at first was after I talked to you, you had I I think one of the things that you had told me was go and get help like i don't remember what you told me specifically but i kind of decided just in general i need to get out of this room like i felt really restless i needed to get out of there and um take a drive and try to sleep for some reason i didn't think it was a good idea to sleep in my room so like 
I made kind of like a checklist, like, okay, first just get some sleep, like sleep this off. And then second, like find medicine somehow. But because of how the the state I heard described as comatose state, where people can be talking, but it's just talking heads too. They might as well be teaching, speaking a different language. Nothing sinks in. So when I did try to go online and find information, that's gotta I, be. I couldn't do it. I f- it was physically like I couldn't in a. I mean, I couldn't understand how to take in any information that was coming at me or how to go about um, following the steps to get help. I just couldn't mentally. I wasn't mentally in the place to even do such a simple thing like use the internet. Um, to find information. So what I did was I just started driving. I'm like, I'm going to try to sleep. I drove out to Newport Beach to try to sleep because the ocean is calming to me. So I'm like, the waves will calm me and I'll be able to sleep or whatever. And I wasn't listening to podcasts or the radio. I'm like, I'm not buying into this shit. I'm not listening to anything. I'm just going to go try to sleep and be good and then try to you know, see if I feel better enough to pursue getting medicine. And um, then after I couldn't get to sleep even more, I just started driving and I turned on the radio and I turned on my podcasts and that's when all the paranoia started coming back again. And I coming, f- it, it got to a point where... um I was literally lost. I didn't know where I was. I just started driving. I was basically trying to drive away from everything that was happening to me. And in the process, I was totally lost. I didn't know where I was. It was nighttime by that time. So then I just ended up going to a motel and just being like, I ended up in Hacienda Heights. Do you know where Hacienda Heights mm-hmm. is? It is like just above Hacienda. Yes. <laughs> It's like diagonally north. It's like, I don't know how the hell I ended up there. That's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. I I just must have been driving like crazy and for really long distance. And um, so I got to the motel and that's when I decided to call my mom and tell her. I, I didn't tell her I was having the paranoia again because I felt like admitting that would be giving into it again. I'm still trying to fight all the paranoid thoughts I was having while at the same time believing in them 100%. And I told my mom I'm having a panic attack, I'm having anxiety, um, I don't know where I am. Like, I, I found out, I didn't know where I was at the time, I found out by, like, the telephone has the phone number and address on it, so that's when I was like, oh, I'm in Hacienda Heights. So that's when I called her, and then um, she just told me to call her in the morning and um i had thought that similarly to my first breakdown when i was on the phone with someone i thought it was tapped or that someone was talking to the person that i was talking to telling them what to tell me so i'm just like because i thought that someone was telling her what to tell me that she knew what was going on with me even though i didn't tell her Mm -hmm. because there was someone i don't I, I understand was, what I you're saying. I was crazy. No, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> so, um... Sadly, I understand what <laughs> okay. you're saying. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so then I finally went to sleep that night. Um, I had my dog with me and I woke up, called my mom again and, um, I don't remember what I said, but at that point, the, I didn't want to leave because I just didn't want to deal with whatever was, like I said, I was running away from, I was trying to run away from all this hallucination shit and all this shit that I believed was happening that wasn't really happening. So I'm just like, I'm not leaving this motel room. I'm not going out there. I don't know where I am. I don't know how to get home from here. And people kept on coming in to the motel room. Like I had the door open and people could see, um, I don't know why I insisted on keeping the door open. Maybe because it was like my way of asking for help. <laughs> like, look at me. I'm a mess. Someone come save me. Um, and so finally, when I wasn't leaving the motel, I mean, you do have to pay for motel rooms. And they just kept on saying, you need to pay for another night. And I'm just like, oh. all right. And I didn't. And I just kept on sitting there, kept on sitting in there until they sent cops and then the cops came and I freaked out and I then was taken to the hospital via the cops and an ambulance. How did you freak out? I was screaming like a, like absolute, like as loud as I could. It's just, it's, it was a terrible feeling to be restrained. Like they would, they were restraining me and, you know, put handcuffs on me and, um, and that's what made me. you start to freak out. Yeah, I was, well, like five police officers came in at once, and so that freaked me out just because, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know, it just freaked me out. For, Is that a for freaky a thing? paranoid person, that's got to be a delight. <laughs> okay. Just a delight. Yeah. Um, so then when I, they weren't like trying to get at me or anything until like they would just take little steps towards me and I would just fly against the wall and like, cling to whatever I could and then finally they just approached me put laid me down on the bed and held me down and handcuffed me and then um I was freaking out a lot too because my dog was with me and I was just like they're gonna take my dog away mm. which it went to like a humane society or something like that but I don't want to leave my dog um and then they did you get your dog back yeah. Okay. Yeah, after I got out. Um, but my... So, um, then they put me on a gurney again and tied me down. And just the whole, like, restrict... Being restrained is just so terrifying. Like, it's just the terrible feeling to get strapped to a gurney when you have, like, no control. And you, you have no control and you don't trust anybody. You think oh that they're against you. Oh, my God. That's got to be terrifying. Yeah, it's probably, like, the most terrified I've ever been. I was screaming bloody murder, like, help me, help me, to, like, the heavens and at no, the Motel 6 in Hacienda Heights. And no idea. I made the biggest scene in the world. And no idea that they are helping you. Yes. N no, I... I did not think for a second that this was a good thing. And then your parents, your parents flew out. After I was in the hospital for like two or three days, I think I was there for three days. Um, they showed up, and yeah, they flew out to to be there for me. 
Are there are there any big pieces from from that that we're we're skipping over? I mean, the time in the hospital was no picnic. <laughs> um, it, but it was just your your basic like. I I didn't. Did you tell them that you used to be on Lamictal? I probably did. I when I got there, there's this drug that does not go right with me at well. It's called Geodon, and apparently that's what they give to people in schizophrenic states. But they gave it to me the first time that I had my breakdown, and apparently they gave it to me this second time I went because the day after I got there, the next day was even worse. Mm. It just makes it worse for me. Um, but I didn't really... And, and does your condition fall under the category of schizophrenia? No, no one's okay. diagnosed me with okay. that. Okay, well, you said schizophrenic state is... So I'm just wondering. Oh, isn't that what schizophrenia is? Is like paranoia and whatnot? Um, yeah, I know that there's hallucinations involved in, in schizophrenia. Okay. But I, I didn't... That's what I mean, I guess, is... Oh, okay. But, um, sorry... But that's not your diagnosis. That's no. just a, that was just your way of describing what it was that you were experiencing. Yes. I got you. Um, I didn't buy into the fact that, like, the part where I realized this isn't a fucking game, you're in a mental hospital, was when, you know, I, I got there. I was at the emergency room pretty much all day. Um, I don't remember what they did or anything like that. I was, I think, out for most of it. But then I was transferred to um, West Covina Mental Health Center. And then I got there and this person sat me down and just was reading all this shit to me that I didn't understand. Like, again, I was in the state where I just couldn't take any information in. I was in a comatose kind of state. And I still felt like, this has got to come along and stop. Like, this is a fucking prank. The people that were fucking mm -hmm. with me are going to come and be like, big joke. Like, mm -hmm. wasn't this great? Wasn't that fun? And um, it wasn't until I... She brought me into the room. There was another girl in the in the room. And that it was like... They were like, okay, here's your bed. And I like... And I got a, a hospital gown garb. That's when I was like, Fuck. I'm like, how did I get here? And this is real. And then that is when I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to submit to this again. I wasn't mm -hmm. fighting. I'm not paranoid. Get out. You know, I was kind of like, this I'm is sick. Real. This is real. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm sick and I need to like, you know, my, yeah, I need to submit was the, the feeling that I came to. Well, I'm so glad that you are back on your meds and yeah. your parents came out and supported you. Yeah, that was really important because it was still hard. When, when I got out of there, I think I was there for four days. Um, when I got out of there, I still wasn't like 100%. I stayed in a hotel with them. They stayed out here for another few days after I got out. And then I ended up, well, remember I had told you the woman that I was living with that I had a room, um, renting a room from because of what happened. She had, um, 
told I found her through a friend of mine. So this friend, this mutual friend that we had relayed the message that she wasn't comfortable with me living there anymore. So I then had to deal with the stress of moving out. And then I moved in with that friend that hooked me up with her kind of for a while, but I wouldn't have been able to like handle, you know, in that three day period where my parents were there, it was important that I just chilled out and figured things out. So God bless my parents. I probably worried the shit out of them, which is the worst thing about it in my eyes. Like, I recovered pretty fast, um, but just the fact that they had to go through that again and come out and get me and then and then leave me there and go back to Wisconsin. Well, I don't know of any parent that wouldn't want to know what's going on with their kid. You know, I get emails from people that were like, I don't want to burden my parents. And then I always say, your parents didn't have you so that you could hide your problems from them. They, that's part of the responsibility of being a parent is that you are there for your kids' ups and downs. But uh, it is beautiful that, um, that they showed up and, and helped you through that. And I'm so glad that you're you're back on your meds and you're and you're feeling good and you're thriving so thank you thank thanks. you for coming and and sharing uh chapter two chapter two thanks Megan. hopefully the final chapter <laughs> thank you thanks many thanks to uh to megan for that great conversation and for being such a such a good supporter of the uh of the show and uh and i loved her documentary by the way um her green bay packer documentary the name of which escapes me right now and if i were a good friend i would pause the podcast and email her and uh, get the name of it so i could plug it but um it's midnight and i'm still putting the show together so fuck you megan how's that grab you wow i don't think there's enough medicine in the world for me speaking of that um I am getting a prescription filled for Lamictal. Speaking of uh, the meds that Megan takes, my uh, my psychiatrist and I have discontinued the transcranial magnetic stimulation for those of you that were following that. Um, I did it for 12 weeks and really did not feel much of a difference. I think I'm just one of those people that uh, has treatment-resistant depression. That's what my psychiatrist says. So on to the next med. Um before I take it out with some surveys, and I got quite a few, I want to remind you guys uh, that there's a couple different ways to support the show. Um, you can support it financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and um, making one-time donation, or my favorite, the recurring monthly donation. For as little as five bucks a month, it, it, months? <laughs> it gives me a base to, to work from to keep this show going. And uh, God bless those of you that have uh, donated or are currently monthly donors. It means the fucking world to me. It really does because um, uh, I want to be able to support myself doing this show. And while that is still far off in the distance, um, it makes me feel like I'm moving forward when people sign up um, to become monthly donors. You can be. <laughs> My brain just went to screensaver there for a second. You can also support the show non financially by going to the um, uh, website and. <laughs> My 
<laughs> fuck. You can also support it financially by uh, using our Amazon search portal. Uh, so when you buy something at Amazon, they give us a couple of nickels and it doesn't cost you anything. It's on the homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. You can support the show non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating. Boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And you can support us um, by spreading the word through social media, Reddit, Tumblr, etc etc really really appreciate uh, mentioning it in news groups meta filter um, stuff like that um, let's get to the oh and there was also I was part of a documentary um, on PBS that I is a- actually airing uh, tonight um, I guess it would be yesterday when you hear this and it's only available um, on the PBS stations I will put a link uh, to it on the website um, because you can watch it now via the web. Um, and the name of the documentary is A New State of Mind, Ending the Stigma of Mental Illness. And I haven't watched it yet, so maybe I'll fucking hate it and be horrified that I plugged it. But the people that did it seemed really nice and know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm, I have faith that uh, it turned out well. And I hope it brings us some new listeners. Enough of my yakking. Let's get to... Um, First thing I want to read is an email from a listener who calls herself um, Rachel. And she writes, "Um, Thank you for the podcast. It means so much to me. I've listened to about half of them so far and plan to listen to the rest over time. Um, I'm the mother of a three-year-old. Motherhood, it's fucking hard. No, it's impossible. The conflicts and anxiety of what you are doing versus what you should be doing. The caring and nurturing of a small being knowing, knowing, that you are somehow fucking this kid up and doing it in ways that you can't even know. Trying to figure out how to keep him safe and healthy and still knowing that it can't happen. That the world will hurt him in ways I can't imagine or control. God, the pain of that. And for those of us with parents who were less than perfect, she puts in parentheses, all of them, it makes you grieve for yourself in a whole new way. As Michael D. mentioned, Michael D. being a previous guest, why and how could you not take care of for or slash hurt the tiny being I was? Uh, how is that even possible? For me, though, and for many so so many other women out there, there is this toll that being a mother takes. It's the death that you and your identity. As a blogger, I really like Janelle Hatchett said, There are moments when I know it. There are moments when I look at that baby and myself and feel my body isn't my body and wonder if maybe I didn't make the biggest mistake of my life because what have I given up? What have I done? Was I ready? What didn't I appreciate? Why didn't I appreciate my life more when it was mine? What if I want to leave one day? I'll never be able to leave one day, ever. I've been the same woman my whole life. What about her? Where is she? Is she just dead? Yes, she is just dead. End quote. It's been nearly three years, and I still feel like I don't know who I am. I mourn myself. I'm not even the co-star in my own life. I'm just a featured actor. When do I get to be me again? I think and I fear that the answer is never. And I feel I must here give the mother's interjection slash apology we all give so as not to be misunderstood. I love my son more than I ever thought it was possible to love anything. But my God, as a mother and a person with a job, I am confined to this tiny labeled box. Pursuing my own dreams or even my own desires, it's no longer an option. 
and the judgment from society, it's unbelievable. Every single thing I do with my child without is scrutinized. And if I fall outside the accepted mold of, quote, mom, I am judged by every human on the planet and judged more harshly than just a, quote, regular person. I'm not allowed to make mistakes. I'm not allowed to be human because life isn't about me anymore. It's only about what I can do for my son. My job, my house, my car, my life, my mess, my food choices, my mental health, it's all for him. I guess I could say that I love my son, but I hate being his mother. I just wanted to get this out for uh, now it's back to plastering on a smile and pretending to be cheerful as I change diapers, read the same book over and over and over, keep a job I hate because we need the benefits and the money, make plans and playdates and appointments and remember every single detail that he needs, cook, quote, nutritious meals, sign up for swim classes with him rather than the yoga classes I'd like for myself, spend every single evening cheerfully wrestling with normal toddler defiance at every turn such that bedtime takes two hours of my life every night over and over and over and over i'm tired i'm miserable there is no space for me in my own life and i have to force happiness as much as i can so that my son can be happy every bit of happiness i can create is all for him that leaves nothing for me thanks for listening rachel i wanted to read that because um a, it's such a descriptive. I felt like I got inside the the heart and heads of so many so many moms reading that, and I do sometimes. Like when I'm I'm out in public and I see a mom with a little kid that's throwing a tantrum, and I think I'm about ready to explode because the line's not moving fast enough. What is her fucking day like, or her husband's day? People that work all day and are struggling to make ends meet. I I, I can't imagine, and and I feel like it was. It was time to give you a shout out. You know, we, we give shout outs to our military who certainly deserve uh, the shout outs. But I think a, a lot of times there are people in our society that don't get the um, their due. They're often just looked at when they fucked up and not looked at um, for when they're just doing their job, which is incredibly difficult. And I would put parents and teachers in that. And um, let's get to the surveys. This is from the Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself Ben Hill. I wonder if that's a, a Benny Hill joke. He's 20, in his 20s. He's straight, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I have incredibly violent thoughts that I feel are closer to my surface than I may be aware. I often think about a situation where I would have to play, quote, hero. But the thoughts that I have never end. I will walk to work at a brisk pace, daydreaming about crushing someone's skull with my hands, all to save the day. Unfortunately, it's not just in a hero position. I also fantasize about raping a younger woman, not a legal young, but early 20s. However, I don't think I could ever go through with it. It's purely masturbatory. Deepest, darkest secrets. It's not that much of a secret, but it's something that I punish myself for every day. The reason I believe my violent nature may be closer to the surface is because my marriage ended the moment I couldn't contain my stress and aggravation any longer and ended up on top of my wife choking her, begging her to quit acting the way she had been for the prior year. I've been so ashamed of my one-time outburst that I have essentially hermited, not a word, but I don't care, myself. I go to work but I do not socialize or care to move on to another woman because I'm so mortified that the behavior is there and ready to explode. 
I have friends, a lot of female friends, that are familiar with the situation, that are aware of what happened and don't blame me, aren't angry with me, and actually feel bad for me. As of late, I have been feeling like a disappointment to the world that has little purpose, but it is too much. Um, but it, I'm too much of a pussy to commit suicide. I feel like I am trapped in a state of being that I'm aware is wrong and should not exist. Boy, you know, my, my first thought is you need to forgive yourself. Um, and therapy might be a really good place to talk about this and process it and maybe get to the root of what made it boil over that day. Everybody fucks up. Everybody fucks up. I think it's what we do with our fuck-ups that separates healthy from unhealthy. And I think sitting and stewing in it is unhealthy um, because I don't think you're stewing in it. You're going to get to a place where you suddenly love yourself. I think you're going to have to talk it out and get hugs and fucking cry and all the ugly, embarrassing shit that we do when we go to support groups of therapy. Um, so that's my that's my two cents on, on that. Um, Oh, I didn't read your uh, sexual fantasies. Uh, rape fantasies where I'm in total control. I really love the idea of having a woman who serves me and encourages me to find and fuck other women in front of her. And, um, you know, dude, as long as your your fantasies stay in your head. Um, let's see. Oh, did he? Has you Have you shared it with a partner? Yes, I'm open with my friends, and I need to be honest with my partner about sharing uh, your fantasies. Um, do you feel any particular feelings towards yourself about your thoughts and fantasies the sexual thoughts not so much i'm just concerned about my inherent violent thoughts that i fear are too frequent well dude there are there like i said there's things that you can do about them and um i i have to tell you um taking responsibility for the unhealthy parts of ourselves can be a really it can have a really positive effect, just not on how we interact with the world, but how we feel about ourselves. It's a sense of accomplishment for me that's bigger than building any piece of woodworking or other shit that I've done. It's it it goes deep. It goes really deep. Um, this is from the Shame and Secrets. Uh, no, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Tony the Wimpy Tiger. He is straight. Although he writes mostly straight, uh, although I am impressed by porn that features guys with big packages. It may be envy, question mark. Um, he's in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, and by the way, I, I get jealous when I see big dicks in porn, so um, get to the back of the line. I, there's times when I would just think, God, what it would be like to just like to have the 13-inch cock, to just walk around and, you know, like as a 20-year-old guy with a 13-inch cock and to be attractive, what what that must be like. And I, th I think that goes to that sick place of fantasy where you imagine like because you have that, you wouldn't have any problems. Like if you got a 13-inch cock, you would never worry about rent. There might be times when certainly rent can be arranged, uh, having, having a dick that big. But um, that's the thing about fantasy is we just always imagine only the parts of it that are good and we never imagine the other dimensions of it that naturally come with being in three-dimensional reality. Um, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? He writes, wow, there are at least five of us here today, but that may be a stretch. How does writing that make you feel? Not thrilled to have so few people in my life that I matter to, but I'm okay with it at the same time because I know it's more... Uh, it's more than others have going for them. 
If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would like to watch Edison work, to just observe his genius in action. I know that's got little to do with healing me, but it would have to be inspiring. No? Question mark. I agree. And sometimes I think shit that's inspiring, seemingly unrelated, can be can be healing. Um, he writes, I'm supposed to be excited that my nephew is graduating next month, but instead I'm obsessing about all the crap I have to go through to get the time off of work to attend. Um, I wouldn't beat yourself up about that. Fuck, my dad paid me to not show up to my college graduation. <laughs> And then thanked me profusely for not having to get in the car and watch me graduate. I took the money and didn't didn't tell him that I had no interest in watching me graduate either. That's a nice thing about not giving a shit about yourself sometimes is you don't take it personally when nobody else does either. <laughs> um, how did it make you feel to write your real feelings out? He writes, not great. I'm bitter that my mental state is such that I'm compelled to sit here and whine about it instead of being out in the world and enjoying something better. Uh, do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? He writes, abnormal compared to others of this generation. No, but I'd be embarrassed. Oh, abnormal compared to others of this generation? No, but I'd be embarrassed to be compared to, quote, real men of a generation or two ago. I now envy men that only had time for drinking and fucking in life. That life sounds great to me now. Again, I would say the fantasy, uh, that one-dimensional fantasy. What about the kids that they weren't there for? And how fucked up and damaged those kids are because they never got any kind of emotional connection to the fucking and drinking dad. Um, would other no would no slow the fuck down, Paul? Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? A bit, perhaps. But knowing I'm of this generation that would rather discuss feelings instead of getting work done is disheartening at the same time. Um, I don't understand why discussing feelings and getting work done have to be mutually exclusive. I I take exception to that, Tony. He writes, I think we're overwhelmed by messages that say, control that inner savage. Don't you dare look at that girl in that miniskirt, you animal. It's just hard to know whether being, to know what being a man means these days. I would agree. It is hard to know what being a man means these days because um, we get all kinds of different mixed messages. So I... You know, what I've found is that I hang around men that I admire, who I see have lives that are working, who carry themselves with dignity and compassion, and I fucking ask them what they do, and then I try to do it. That's, that's been my, my secret, and go to support group and therapy, and try to keep my killing of people to a minimum. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Asterixon, Asterixion? I don't know how the fuck you pronounce it. He's already pissing me off. Uh, he is in his 20s, straight, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about leaving, just stopping everything and going out to wander the streets till I die. I'm disappointed with the life I live. Dude, I have lived so many years in that place where I used to fantasize about emptying my bank account and just buying as much heroin as that would buy, driving to Seattle, finding a flop house to stay in, and then just shoot dope until I had like a, a week's left and then shoot that week's worth and overdose. And honestly, that was like a comforting thought to me for many years. And I've never even done heroin. 
deepest, darkest uh, secrets. I can barely talk to my father, whom I've had a pretty good relationship with since I found pictures. I don't understand this. Since I, since I, since after I found pictures of my cousin's breasts on his computer, some of them he's photoshopped. Oh, I get it. There's like two things going on. I can barely talk to my father, whom I had a pretty good relationship with. Um, since I found pictures of my cousin's breasts on his computer. Some of them he's photoshopped, so their breasts are showing. It creeps me the fuck out. I want to have a good relationship with my dad, but there's no way I could talk to him about this. Um, that would be a fucking difficult topic to bring up. I feel you, man. And that is, um, that has got to be really hard to see your dad. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a dream of watching myself tied up, getting raped by men, and the dream I'm watching from afar, but the dream me is enjoying it. I get that a lot. People describe that a lot, where um, they're observing themselves or they're observing someone in the situation they want to be in but can't bring themselves to be in. Um, he says, uh, I couldn't couldn't share this with another person. I've always had trouble opening up to people. Um these generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Curiosity. When I was younger, I struggled with my sexuality. People would tell me they thought I was gay when I knew I was straight. I'm not sure what I think anymore. Dude, I don't think it matters. I don't think you need to label your um, your sexuality. I think honor what you feel, and if it's not hurting anybody, let the loads fly, unless you're doing it to numb yourself. And sometimes I think that's okay too, but I think if it's compulsive, I guess I should say, and keeping you from avoiding your feelings, then talk to somebody. I had to read this one, this next shame and secret survey, just because of the name. Guy calls himself Mexican butthole. He's already my friend. He's straight in his 30s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, um, never been sexually abused. He writes, not sure what's wrong with me. For the past couple of years, I really don't care about sex. I like to masturbate, though, and usually do that way more than have sex. My issue is when I masturbate, I usually think about men. I think about men using me like a whore and servicing them whenever they want. It's odd because I'm not gay or have had any trauma that I'm aware of. I wanted to read these two surveys back to back because I wanted these guys to know that they're that they're not alone and that it doesn't fucking matter what you label yourself or what gets you off as long as you're not hurting other people. Deepest, darkest secrets, I let a dog lick my butthole. I'm going to assume it was a chihuahua. Call that an educated guess. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My fantasy is that I'm back in college and my roommate comes home from a long night of drinking and makes me give him oral. Occasionally comes home with some friends and they all take advantage of my mouth and ass. In the end, they all finish in my mouth and on my face. Um, would you ever consider, consider telling a partner or close friend? He writes, nope, she would freak out. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I wonder if I'm bisexual from time to time. Um, whatever you are, I hope you love yourself. Also from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Tracy18. She's straight. She's in her 50s. Uh, never been sexually abused, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm ashamed that I wish that my boyfriend's cruel ex-wife would live a horrible, unhappy life. 
She has never been diagnosed diagnosed, but I'm convinced that she's got borderline personality disorder. I know that I should feel sorry for her, but she has been so very heinous that I can't muster the pity feelings up. Deepest, darkest secrets. In the fourth grade, I sent a valentine to a kid in my class named Jeff. He had greasy hair and gray teeth. The valentine said, I would hoot and howl if you'd be my valentine. I scratched out hoot and howl and wrote, throw up. I got in trouble at the time, and my teacher told me that I was mud in his household. He carted me down to the principal's office, and I don't remember anything he said. I just kept saying, please don't tell my parents. He never did. I didn't tell my mother about it until I was a senior in high school. I'm 52 years old, and I'm still ashamed of this. That poor boy was probably tormented by many people. I've tried to find him several times over the years to apologize, but my leads come to a dead end. I think it's time you forgive yourself. You tried to reach out to this guy. You're sorry. And now you're just causing yourself pain. Um, everybody, as kids, did shit that they probably regret. And I think you need to have some compassion for yourself here. You sound like you're a, you're a, a compassionate person that um, is very aware of how you interact with other people. Maybe that was a good thing that happened to you. Maybe that shame that happened to you as a, as, as a little girl woke something up in you that went, wow, I hurt somebody. I'm going to make sure I don't do that again. So I say um, time to forgive. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being taken by force or being part of an orgy. I sentence you to death. I just wanted to, I just wanted to flip that one on you. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner close friend? No, I would be too embarrassed. Um, by the way, those are probably two of the most common fantasies that, that I read. Um, to these secrets and thoughts generating a particular feelings towards yourself, the Valentine incident hurts my heart. It makes me feel awful that I can't find Jeff so I can apologize. I work in a helping profession and I strive to never hurt anyone's feelings. I'm disgusted that I did it then. Well, you sound like a beautiful person now, so fucking go to an orgy and celebrate. This, we're almost done. We're in the home stretch. This is from, um, I got one more survey and then an email to read. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Nicole in Kansas. She is straight. She's in her 30s. Um... And I hope, by the way, when I ask people, are you straight, gay, bisexual, or asexual, or not interested in either sex, I hope that that isn't making people feel like they need to fit into a box. Maybe that's a mistake on my part, maybe. But I do want to, maybe I need to put an other in there. Or maybe I do and I just don't know it. Don't worry, I'll figure this out and get back to you. Um... She is in her, Nicole is in her 30s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. When I was younger, maybe 8 to 12 years old, I remember having odd reactions and feelings to a cer to certain... I remember having odd reactions and feelings to certain actions from my paternal grandfather. In my gut, I felt an aversion towards advances and other verbal statements from him. I knew inside... The way he looked at me or touched me 
although not overtly sexual, was not wholesome in their intention. Years later, my sister found out our grandfather had systematically sexually abused my aunt and several neighborhood girls. I then began searching my memory banks for confirmation of my feelings of inappropriate advances from grandpa. Deepest, darkest thoughts. And by the way, don't ever underestimate how damaging that can be. Um, I'm one to tell you, somebody doesn't have to grab your junk for you to feel like an object with zero fucking worth, especially when it's somebody that you're related to. Deepest, darkest thoughts. When children that aren't my own cry for no apparent reason, sometimes I have thoughts of physically hurting them in response to my frustration. The anger in me bubbles to the surface, and in my mind, I imagine myself hurting the child. In the scenario, the child's cries only make me more hell-bent, and afterwards, I feel so much guilt and pity. I feel like my grandfather or my dad. My anger is explosive and irrational. I know logically expecting a child to stop crying by using physical abuse or beatings is insane, but the intolerance for the child's sadness only fuels my anger. The more pitiful the child, the worse my reaction is. It repulses me after I have these thoughts. I cry. I feel as though I must punish myself and that I don't deserve to be a mother even though I have never hurt a child, mine or other people's. Well, I hope you get some comfort from that other email that I read um, from that other mother who was feeling completely overwhelmed. There are few jobs on the planet more overwhelming, confusing, and thankless, I would imagine, than being a parent. Uh, Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was about 25 years old, I actively planned out a robbery of a former employer after I was sacked for stealing. I love when there are cues as to what part of the world they're from. Um, This person's probably English or Australian. Um, Where was I? Uh, I was fired for dishonesty and theft from almost every job from the age of 22 until I got off heroin and pills and into a methadone program. I snuck into one employer's business in the early morning and stole the deposit from the prior night and bought heroin. The dope only lasted me a day and a half. Then the shame began. So I just started the cycle again. I've never told my family or friends these truths. I usually just told them I quit my jobs or was fired for other reasons that didn't seem as terrible. At one job, I was fired after money came up missing, and after making some ridiculous excuse and believing I got away with it, my boss's wife was observing the bar one night and caught me using heroin. She went into the restroom shortly after me and fished an empty heroin balloon from the bottom of the bathroom trash. Her and her husband lectured me before releasing my last check to me, and the entire time I sat with a fucked up smile on my face. I left there with the check, cashed it, and bought heroin. Then I snorted it off the banister in the hallway of a random apartment building I was walking past. I went home and lied to my boyfriend about why I didn't have a job anymore. I stole hundreds of dollars from my now-dead grandmother. I stole money from my younger sister and blamed it on my niece, who was a toddler and liked to dig into her mother's purse. Once when I was in my 20s, I stole all my boyfriend's six-year-old son's hydrocodone syrup he had after having surgery and replaced it with NyQuil and other cough syrups I found in the closet. Then I blamed it on my boyfriend when my boyfriend's ex-wife confronted me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have fantasies of being sexually dominated by total strangers or home intruders 
raped and or beaten. I have other fantasies of being raped by physically deformed and monstrous men, horrible fat men and or men with mental illnesses or delays like Down syndrome or extreme autism. They don't really beat me as much as they are very forceful sexually. And although I resist them, I get immense sexual satisfaction from the act. The more hideous or infirmed the individual, the more intense the fantasy. I also have masturbation fantasies involving men in authority positions abusing me and dominating me physically and sexually. Uh, would you ever consider... And th- those are actually quite common. Um, you're not the... By far, not the only person uh, whose survey I've read that, that has that, uh, men and women. Would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend, your fantasies? Uh, partially, and only if I felt on equal footing morally with the other person, like they were as fucked up as me. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Absolutely. I feel as if I am a morally bankrupt human, subhuman. I feel disgusting and perverted sexually, and I find it nearly impossible to be open during sex. It's hard for me to engage in normal fantasy play during sex or to let myself feel good about my sexuality. I denigrate my husband in reference to his sexual fantasies and try to make him feel bad about himself for being open about his fantasies. Because of this, I don't ever really feel satisfied or open during intercourse. I feel ashamed and dirty. You know, I would say the only thing, and you don't, and I don't think you should feel bad about any of this, but the only thing that I think really needs addressing is, is not making your husband feel bad about himself and using that as a defense mechanism. Um, I think couples counseling might be a good thing or just going to talk to somebody about it on your own, but you are not subhuman. Um, you are not perverted. Um, did you do shit that you're, ashamed of yeah but fuck we all have and i think we all need to get to a place where we can have some compassion for ourselves and it's a hell of a lot easier when we're moving forward and we're in some type of recovery because when we're not then i think that voice that tells us we're a piece of shit is impossible to to drown out i think that's why we we numb it with addictions it's it's like the worst numbing tool ever Feels great at the time, but in the long run, it's, let me tell you, <laughs> it doesn't work. I want to end it with uh, an email that I got, and this is actually a series of emails that I got from a, a listener named Pam, and I'm going to read these in the order that I got them in. Yeah, Why would I read it in opposite order that I got them in? <laughs> because I'm her- the Harold Pinter of... <laughs> podcast fucking jackass pam writes dear paul you have helped me start to change my life a bit dramatic i know but i believe it's true i was molested for about four years over christmas vacation by my father's uncle i've only written this once before and have never said it out loud i am 44 years old i have lived a life of isolation always shying away from human touch I have never had a boyfriend and never even been attracted to men or women for that matter. I have questioned my sexual orientation for a lot of my life. I've had some friends but have usually ended the relationships when I felt I was getting too close to anyone because I was afraid that they would reject me if they found out. I feel sad and lonely when I'm not around people but anxious and panicky when I am around anyone. I relate to that very much. Um, 
I feel like I have not done a lot of things that I wanted to because I was so afraid of what other people would think. I don't even go out to eat because it's so uncomfortable for me. But after listening to your podcast for about a month, I finally asked for help. I've made an appointment with a doctor for a physical. I haven't been uh, to one in about 15 years out of pure fear. And I've made an appointment for therapy and intake screening. I am both scared out of my mind and happy with myself for taking a step, however small, to try to heal and live a better life. My greatest fear is that the doctor will tell me that there is nothing wrong with me and that I will have to figure out how to live the rest of my life with these feelings of fear and anxiety. I guess I'll deal with that issue if it comes up. For now, though, I am taking my little steps one at a time forward. So thank you. We are not alone, not one of us. And then I wrote her back and said, um, thank you for your beautiful email. I'm so flattered and happy to hear that you are realizing you're worth getting help. I've never had an experience of getting help that was anything like the horror story I painted in my mind. I also suggest a sex abuse survivor support group. One of the hallmarks of sexual abuse is either acting out, being really promiscuous, or acting in, retreating from all social and sexual involvement, which uh, some people call social uh, sex sexual uh, or social anorexia. There are many people with stories like yours in my support groups, and I tend to oscillate between the two extremes, most recently being quite anorexic. I can't remember the last time I made plans instead of my wife. I have my little routine that I stick to, and any variation from it makes me anxious. If it weren't for hockey and support groups, I would have zero social life outside my wife and my libido can completely disappear for months at a time. Or the idea of someone who loves me, like my wife, touching me sexually uh, almost makes me recoil. Uh, I'm sure your therapist will help you find the best way to heal. I just wanted to share some stuff to remind you you're not alone and that what you're experiencing is a real thing, not some personal defect you think is inherent in you. It's unhealed pain and broken trust. Both can be mended. Um... And then she wrote, um, so an update, I went to my nurse practitioner and basically vomited my feelings all over her, her staff, her office, you get the idea. I could not stop shaking and crying. They were so kind to me, which made me cry even harder. Those ladies were great. They didn't give me the poor you look that I hate. They were compassionate and professional, but most importantly, they really listened. I explained my feelings between blowing my nose like a Canadian goose The nurse practitioner spoke to me about social anxiety disorder and suggested trying Zoloft. I had never heard of SAD and thought I was just a social retard. My friends just think I'm shy or very quiet. So I stopped on my way home and got the Zoloft and jumped onto the internet to learn about social anxiety disorder. What I read was right on. I felt a eureka moment. You are absolutely correct. It was nowhere near as bad as I had imagined in my mind. Next stop, counseling. I am not sure I am ready to go to a support group quite yet, but I will keep an open mind. And uh, so I asked her for another update when she went to counseling. And she writes, Hi, Paul. I went to my intake interview on Thursday. As usual, I got super nervous and had a panic attack in the parking lot. I got myself together enough to go in and get things started. Thank goodness there were no other people in the waiting room when I got there. After about a two-minute wait that seemed like an hour, I filled out the paperwork and was shown into a small room with a computer. I took the self-evaluation and met with the intake specialist. 
I decided in the weeks preceding the appointment that I was going to be as honest and open as I possibly knew how to be. No sugarcoating my opinions, no BSing, answering all of the questions with honesty and openness that I have never expressed out loud or maybe even to myself. The take-in specialist, Judith, was very calm. She guided me through my life timeline. She asked me my very pointed she asked me vo- very pointed questions that made me really think about my feelings. She really seemed to understand the pain that I am in and have been in for as long as I can remember. Paul, it was the first time in my life that someone has actually listened to me. She did not let me think that I was being silly or that I was just, quote, tired as my mother always has. She did not dismiss my feelings as being ridiculous or that I was being a wimp as my father always has. She did not ask if I was on the rag, as my brother always has. Judith just sat and waited for me to figure things out and answer her. When I had trouble expressing myself, she helped by giving a few suggestions, but she seemed to be okay if I just couldn't come up with an answer. Towards the end of the interview, Judith said that she believed that I have PTSD as well as social anxiety. Um, She reassured me that she felt counseling would benefit me and that I could learn coping skills to help relieve some of the anxiety. I should be hearing from Judith within a week to set up counseling sessions with a therapist. You are right. Asking for help was so damn hard for me to do, but it was the best thing I've ever done for myself. On the drive home, I felt so relaxed. I don't remember ever feeling so calm. The ball of tension in the pit of my stomach was gone for an hour or two only, but it gave me hope that perhaps with a lot of work, I could feel that good a lot more often. Telling Judith about being molested was so fucking hard, but it wasn't the atomic bomb that it felt like to me. I know this is just the beginning of my journey. I feel like I've been taking care of everyone else around me for so long that now it is time to take care of myself. I feel like I need to learn some skills and how to set reasonable limits for both myself and for others so that I won't end up being so drained both emotionally and physically. Crap, I feel so selfish. Which, by the way, is... When we begin to set boundaries, that's the first thing we hear in our head and feel in our body is, you selfish motherfucker. I don't think there's any other way. And it can also feel really empowering, but I experienced both when I began to set boundaries with people. Um, She continues, anyway, it's a lot to work on, but I'm actually feeling more optimistic than I have in a long while. I've been taking Soloft for a week now and don't feel much different. I'm told it takes at least two weeks to kick in. I can't wait. At least I am not having any side effects. I know you are going through some shit of your own. I want you to know how much I value you and your work. I don't want to think where I would be without your advice or that of your guests. Big hugs, Pam. Well, Pam, that made my my day when I read that. And so many of your emails and surveys make my day when I read them because they remind me that, that I'm not alone. And if you're out there and you're, and you're feeling stuck, um, there, is, there is hope. There is, um, there is absolutely hope. And you know what? I'm going to read one more thing. I, I feel like I always have to read a, a happy moments. Um, not that I have to, but I want to because it just feels right. Um, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, David Celine Foster Dion. Um, And she writes, many years ago, my best friend and I got really into having our own YouTube channels. We didn't do anything really different or popular or anything. We would just mostly film and share snippets of our lives often together. One night, we were hanging out at his 
house doing virtually nothing, eating cheap pizza, watching bad Saturday night TV, drinking soda and laughing hysterically at our own jokes. He turned the camera on us, filmed it all, and uploaded it as a series of four videos. Whether I'm in a good or bad place, whenever I go back to watch them, it is like I am reliving that evening, laughing so hard no sound is coming out of my mouth, tears streaming from my eyes and holding my crotch. Yes, it's that funny. At the end of the videos, I feel a profound sense of gratitude and peace from this simple moment of delight that I can treasure forever. That's beautiful. Thank you for that, David Celine Foster Dion. Uh, I appreciate that. And thank you guys for helping me create this community um, that is bringing so much meaning to my life. And when my days are dark, it it's it really... Uh, it really lights them up, and I and I hope that you feel the same way. And remember, if you're out there and you're stuck, there is hope. You just gotta ask for help. You are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.